Well, we are in week six, week six in our Jesus People series. And uh, over the past few weeks, we've kind of gone through a few different churches, and we've learned a few different things, and all of the, the goodness that comes with those. And uh, today is no exception. Today we are going to be preaching from, uh, again, the book of Revelation, and, and we're going to be looking at the church of Sardis. Sardis. And as you notice, I'm not baking today, so we can just relax a little bit. Um, if you were with us last week, if you haven't watched last week's message, it was a very interesting illustration, so go on and check it out. But this week, we are, we are digging into Sardis, and, and this church has a unique struggle that Jesus talks about. A struggle that I think maybe even some of us can actually identify pretty strongly with. When I was prepping for this message and I reflected back on my own life, uh, it, it was a struggle that I was absolutely familiar with. <clears throat> um, growing up and, and going to school, I was always that student, and maybe some of us can identify with this, I was that student who really just didn't have to try hard. I was complacent. I'd show up in middle school and high school, and I was that kid who I'd show up, and on the whiteboard behind me would be, you know, exam day, and I'd be like, oh, who knew we had an exam today? I didn't know that. And I'd also be that kid who looks to the person to my right or left and be like, hey, do you have a pencil that I could borrow? Because I definitely did not come prepared. Like, I don't even have a pencil. You know I didn't study. I was complacent. I took the easy way. It came easy, but then this thing called college came. And believe it or not, courses, some of these courses got harder. <laughs> like, why do they do that to us? And I had to learn some new disciplines. I had to learn how to dive in, apply myself, and actually do this thing called study. I'd like to say I mastered it, but full transparency, I definitely haven't. I'm still, I'm actually in a class right now um, online, and, and some of the, the work and everything, I'm, I'm, I'm trying, and then there's moments where I'm like, man, that easy road is nice. It's, it's nice. And, and what I decided to look into is this idea of complacency. And here's what one... Uh, one writer, one commentator put when it came to this church, and they said this is that when this church, it was complacent, and here's some of the symptoms. The symptom of complacency is one that they were satisfied with things as they are. Satisfied with things as they are. Things were good enough. But then the second symptom is, is they saw what it could be. They saw the improvements that could happen but they just were still okay with being good enough. This idea of being good enough, things are good enough, it becomes today's watchword, it's good enough for today, but then that becomes tomorrow's standard, and we start settling over the course of time. That good enough is perfect. And that's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's similar to if, if you watch how water navigates, it navigates downhill, and it takes the easiest course. That's the idea of complacency. 
I still have to fight it. In this class that I'm in and even in other things I'm doing, I still have to fight complacency and continue to push harder to go further than what I see is good enough, to strive to be better than just good enough. And here's something that like, I've absolutely loved about this series. I've been stretched. I've been incredibly stretched. When you think back to some of the first letters that we visited and look in, looked into in, in Revelation, we remember to not leave our first love. We remember to chase after Jesus with the love that we are called to. We also, I, I've been stretched to remain faithful to him and his callings, his leadings, and his presence in life. I continue to be stretched to hold true, to not compromise on what we know is true, to be faithful and remain pure in heart. And here's the reality is we have to remember, we constantly have to remember that this book, that these letters in Revelation, they were written to real people with real cities, real churches, that had some real issues, some real struggles, and things happening. It was a real thing. This is the city of Sardis, obviously a modern day. And as you can see, as this is a flyover of Sardis, you can understand, we can start to understand that this city it sits up on top of a hill. We understand and we can start to see that this city could feel pretty comfortable. And what's interesting is that this city had a very interesting blend of faithful Jews and a blend of Christians, but then also a blend of pagan practices that were commonly practiced. And much like other churches that, uh, you know, Revelation is written to in the, the seven letters in Revelation, there was definitely impure practices. There was sexual immorality, much like many of the other churches. But the people in Sardis, these people were well known for their loose moral environment and an easy money mentality. Let's just keep things comfortable. And that meant that this city and these people were linked with this idea of being pleasure-seeking and soft people. And so as we start to dig in to this text, we have to understand that John and, and Jesus essentially is writing to this church, and these are real people facing real struggles. And we can't forget that. And so this is, what, uh, this is what John writes on basically Christ's behalf. And, and Revelation 3, this is what it says. It opens up with, write this letter to the angel, essentially the leader of the church in Sardis. This is a message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. And this is what he says. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, if you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as an unexpected, as a thief. 
These are chosen words that Jesus speaks to the church. He's very intentional with the words he speaks. Because in this moment, in the very beginning, we start to understand who Christ is. Again, reflecting back to Revelation 1, the vision of Jesus. And it says that Christ stands there and he's holding the sevenfold. And he's holding the, the seven stars. He's holding the completeness of his spirit in the church. Seven in Hebrew is the number of completeness. So here Jesus is saying that I hold all the things together. I hold the completeness of not only my spirit, but also the church herself. He's holding the fullness of the spirit of God and the fullness of the church. And what's interesting is that when we've read some of these other letters Oftentimes, Jesus would really commend them for a few different things. Oh, I commend you of your works. I commend you of your deed. I commend you of your love for each other. Jesus really doesn't do that with the church in Sardis. He basically goes right into it. I know all the things you do. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. It's not like, hey, you're doing this really good. He basically says, don't forget who I am. I hold all the completeness of things together. Now, let's talk about this issue that I have with you. You're dead. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are actually dead. Everything seemed alive, and it looked alive. Everything in this city was vibrant, and it looked like it was going well. But he says you are dead. You are dead. Your reputation does not match your reality. And here's what I wrestled with with this church. And I think we have even seen it in sometimes our own lives maybe, but maybe even the, the general church as well. And this is what it is. A good Christian reputation doesn't equal salvation. Now, if we're going to be honest, if we take a little time out, commercial break here. That's tough to swallow. A good Christian reputation does not equal salvation. I think if we're going to call ourselves honest truths here, like if we take a moment and just say, ah, let's dig into that. We've seen maybe even ourselves and some of our closest friends walk in a good Christian reputation, but their true heart set doesn't match the reputation that they have. That's tough. And Jesus, when he speaks to this church in Sardis, I think this is essentially what he's calling out. He's saying your reputation and your reality are not matching up. It, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't even say, when you reread these verses, he doesn't say, keep on fighting. He doesn't say, oh, I know the struggle. He doesn't say, I know it's a hard battle right now. It's literally, there's no fight right now. There's no, I see the struggle. There's no hardships. He just says, you seem, your reputation, you look alive, but you are dead. These are some bold, harsh words. And here's a reality that I started to wrestle with. Jesus calls the people in this church spiritually dead. So why is there no struggle? Why is there no fight and battle going on? 
Well, simply put, maybe it's because when you're spiritually dead, you are no longer a threat to Satan's domain. When you're spiritually dead, there's no fight. There's no struggle. He doesn't have to work hard. That's tough. Because these people have a reputation of being a vibrant faith community. But there's no spiritual warfare going on. There's no spiritual war going on in them. They're not encouraged to endure or fight back, really. There was no fight. Now, it could have been very simple here that Jesus can just basically kick them to the curb, cast them, and be like, ah, you're hopeless. You're dead. But we have to remember something, and this is a pivotal moment here. We have to remember who's speaking these words to the church. Because who's speaking these words to the church is Jesus. This is the same Jesus who got news that his best friend, one of his homies, Lazarus, was dead. And he, he weeps for him and he goes over to his tomb and he stands at the mouth of the tomb and they roll the, the stone away at, at Lazarus' tomb. And what does Jesus do? He tells Lazarus to come out. This is the same Jesus. Lazarus was dead. He was dead dead. And Jesus looks in the tomb and he goes, hey, Lazarus, come on out. We got stuff to do, bro. And Lazarus walks on out in all of his tomb gear. This is the same Jesus, the same Jesus, that when he died, three days later, he came back. And why? Because he's got stuff to do. He's not done yet. The same Jesus who spoke to his friend to come out, the same Jesus who himself walked out of the tomb is the same Jesus that's looking at this church and says, I know you are dead, but there is hope because I am God Almighty and I got the Spirit of God flowing through me and I got word for you, church. That's what he's saying. That's a good place for an amen, guys. Come on. The same God is speaking to this church is the same God that's here today. And what does that mean? It means there's hope. There's hope for life. There's hope for renewed life, even when you are dead. Because I know a God who can take what's dead and make it alive again. And it's interesting as he does that, he reminds them, to strengthen what little remains. He, he uses the word wake up. Wake up. What's interesting is this city had a, had a tendency to be complacent, not just spiritually, but even defense-wise. What's intriguing is, as you saw in that flyover, you saw this great, amazing city. The city and the people thought that they were basically impenetrable, that nobody could conquer them. They have these walls and they're on this hill, like everything was in their favor. But what's intriguing is that in the historical accounts of Sardis, there are two main times that this city actually got conquered. And here's how it happened one time. There were guards sitting on watch, and they were messing around. They were complacent. They were comfortable. Well, one of them lost his helmet, and it fell over the side of the wall. 
And so he knew that if his leading officer saw him with no helmet on, he'd be in big trouble. So as he's standing on the wall, he looks around. He doesn't see any enemy armies around him. So he goes down to a secret doorway, a secret passageway, walks down the passage on the side of the wall, gets his helmet, walks back up, and goes back to his post. Well, little did he know that just a little bit off in the distance, hiding, was a spy. And the spy saw him use this little passageway. And so that night, the spy runs back, gets his army. That night, they go into the city through this secret passageway. It was conquered. Why? Because in some ways, they fell asleep. They were no longer watchful for the attacks. They were no longer prepared. They had overconfidence in what they had. They stopped being watchful. They started to enter into a slumber. We have to understand, we have to understand that when both of these times that this city was conquered, it was due to a lack of being watchful, a lack of being prepared. They were complacent. Here Jesus is, and he's urging them to stay alert. He's urging them to stay awake. He's urging them to continue to do what he has called them to do. And I think I, I see Jesus' heart in this city. Because I see Jesus' heart, and remember that this is a mix of pagan practices, Jewish practices, and then even Christian practices. I see his heart. As he encourages and he tells this church, wake up. Come back to life. There's more to be done here. I see his heart. And I think there's this tension of, is this a, a church that is, is like a model of what the church should be? It's in the smack dab middle of pagan practices and, and hard times. Or is this a church that's compromised much like many of the other ones? It's like pagan practices. It's like wrong beliefs enter into the church and be leading that. And I believe that the church, the church, the capital C church, it, it can and it should be built in moments and places where there are things around us that do not match with our kingdom of God. And we're called to be the church and to be a beacon of light and hope into a dark world. And I believe that we are called to do that even here in this, this location that we're in, right here in Comstock Park. We're coming out of a pandemic. I don't know if you all knew that or not. But that means that there are people who are hungry for truth, hungry for answers, hungry for God. And I believe that we are smack dab right here, right where we are, so that we can be a lighthouse for his kingdom, his glory on full display. We might not have all the answers of what that looks like, but what we do have, what we do have is this. We have the Spirit of God, the same Spirit who has raised death and, and brought life from it, is the same Spirit that, that is here and wants to spread all over this community. Jesus is reminding the church Although you are dead right now, don't forget who I am. And this is what he says. He continues on in verses 4 through 6. He says this. Uh, yet, yet, 
There are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And all who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. This imagery, anyone, anyone who has not soiled their garments will be clothed in white. And when he says that, he will announce to his father and the angels that they are mine. This is a sense of ownership that Jesus claims these people. Remember, remember that oftentimes as we look back at some of these other liars, Jesus talks to these other churches, especially when we looked at like, say, Pergamum or Thyatira. And in those two churches, there were a few bad among the good. But in Sardis, Jesus is like, there's a few good among the bad. <laughs> Most of y'all were bad. There's a few of you that are good. So strengthen, grow, hold fast. And when he uses the terminology of soiled garments, this is not a, a, a terminology that Jesus just pulls out of nowhere, but rather this is an a image that he talks about that these people in Sardis would identify with. Because you would not go see... You would not go see a God, a pagan God, with dirty garments on. That was a big no-no. If you're going to go and stand before this pagan God of whatever, you, you should go and, you know, have clean clothes and look your best. But listen, listen. Jesus invites those who in their soul are not soiled. He invites them into an intimate relationship with him. We know that white symbolizes what? Purity. My wife and I will be married eight, eight years. Uh, yeah. Eight years this year in September. Before our, our wedding, that's the best picture in the world, by the way. <laughs> Um, before our wedding, we did that first look. And I remember standing with my back and all my groomsmen and the bridesmaids were standing there and I could hear them start talking. And so I knew like, oh my word, like she's near. And I remember like standing there and I remember her tapping on my shoulder. And I remember the moment turning around the moment of pure, like, I don't even have the words in some ways of, like, the beauty, the pureness. I remember standing at that altar and watching her as she walked down. This wedding dress, wedding dresses are made out of some of the, like, finest linens and cloths that you can have. The thread, like, things are just beautiful. Wedding dresses cost a lot for one-time wear. <laughs> Wedding dresses cost a lot because they're made out of fine, fine things. 
And here's what's so incredible is I remember, um, I actually don't remember my wedding ceremony much. I remember like two things from it. One, I butchered my vows. Absolutely butchered my vows. Josh was standing for me, he remembers. <laughs> butchered my vows. It was awesome. Uh, and then number two, I remember the moment after this, being pronounced husband and wife for the first time, and walking down that aisle. I believe that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. That intimate moment where he and the church, his bride, walk hand in hand down the aisle, and the perfection, the beauty, the white, the wholeness, the intimate relationship. I truly believe that this is what Christ desires. In this chapter, in this book, Christ desires purity of his people. Christ desires them to be washed and clothed in white. He desires to be in this beautiful, intimate, deep relationship with his people. He talks about the book of life. And, and we have to understand that when Jesus references the book of life, it's not like he's sitting up there in heaven or it's not like he has a scribe sitting next to him erasing as quickly as he can and rewriting names and, ah, man, like, Josh, you did it again. I got to erase you again. And two days later, like, okay, he's back. Like, it's not like he's doing that. He's not doing that. The book of life brings us assurance and comfort knowing that we are his and he calls us his beloved. It's this assurance that he has chosen us and he has loved us deeply and we can walk with him in a deep, intimate relationship. But I believe truly that there are way too many people in the church, capital C church, in the church, who think that they may be saved but they really have never met his spirit. The reputation says, I checked the boxes. But they're not living and operating under his spirit. They're not living and operating under his spirit. They do the daily devotions. They check the box. They come to church each week. They check the box. I mean, they've been faithful. They haven't cheated on their spouse. They check the box. They post the right things, one Bible verse a week, we check the box. We, we live a good, quote, quote, Christian life. I haven't murdered anyone. Check the box. But the reality is, is that the heart doesn't match that. Your Monday through Saturday looks different than your Sunday. Maybe your browser history, your texts don't match some of the things that you're telling your accountability partners and your friends. Maybe you're filling your soul with things that harm, that eat you away and distract you from God and his spirit's leading. Our outside appearance and the inward reality don't match. Why? Because a good Christian reputation does not equal salvation. They may acknowledge God with their lips, not with their hearts and their lives. So what's at risk? That's the ultimate question. 
Have we asked ourselves that question? What's at risk? What's at risk if we don't wake up? What's at risk if we've maybe started to fall into a slumber? We've gotten complacent and comfortable. What's at risk? What's at risk is this. <clears throat> is people. People. Their lives and their souls. During this pandemic, I'm sure most of you, you know, it's been almost a year. And I remember the first few weeks of it, thinking to myself, ah, oh, it's only two weeks. It's only two weeks I can't give somebody a hug. I'll survive. It's only two weeks I have to do this. I'll make it through. It's only two weeks. And as it's extended on and we've seen deaths and struggles and sickness, there's been something stirring in my heart that there's a reality that we are right here, exactly in this spot. And I know I've said it recently, but there is a whole entire community just across the street. That means there's families, there's moms and dads, there's kids, there's grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles. There's maybe single college students. There's, there's people who maybe have never heard that Jesus loves them. There may be some of your neighbors. There may be some of your own family members. There may be some of your own friends who are just waiting, who are just waiting, who are standing near their door, who are sitting in their chair, who are at your work cubicle, who are just waiting for you and me and us to wake up and to just proclaim that Jesus is the hope of the world. And he loved you so much that he died for your sins. They are just waiting for somebody to say, would you join me at church? Hey, what if you come over on Sunday morning? I'll make pancakes. They're just waiting for somebody to have the conversation with them that Jesus can be their Lord in their life. What's at stake? What's at risk? For some, we're talking about eternity. Eternity in hell or eternity in heaven with the one true living God. What's at risk? Souls. People we love dearly. I can't be comfortable with knowing that there might be people in my life who have never heard that Jesus loves them. Knowing that all I, all I may have to do is just have a simple conversation. Tony Dungy is a uh, retired, incredible football coach. 
And I remember reading one of his books, and when he said something along the lines of um, this, this reality of, um, why are we as Christians so scared to tell somebody about Jesus? That was a simple question that he asked. Why are you so scared? And he said, and I think it comes down to two things. Either one, you just actually don't believe what you're living and you're preaching. Or two, you're just too scared and you're so comfortable in your own place right now that you don't want to invite anybody in to get you uncomfortable. And if I believe this book and everything in this book, even the place where it says genuine leather, then I better be living that out and preaching that every day in my life. Because there are lives at stake. And so here's what I think we got to do. I think we're in 2021. And I think we have to go all in. I believe that we have to go all in. I believe that we can't hold anything back and we can't be comfortable anymore. I'd be lying to you if I said, like, we have all the answers for this hand-to-hand ministry. We don't. I'd be lying to you if I said, like, you know, we're just going to try and make it by and coast. I'm going to be very upfront right now, like, we may be stretched this coming year. I believe that God is moving swiftly and giving our leadership team and myself a vision to see new people come to Christ through this church. I believe there are people right across that that road that need to hear that Jesus is Lord. And we're going to do whatever it takes to bring the kingdom of God to them. We're not going to stop at anything. If that means that on Sunday morning maybe we, we don't even have a regular service, but we go door to door asking people if we can pray with them, Hope you brought your boots. People's lives are at stake. Family members are at stake. We're going to go all in. We're going to trust that he is at work. We're going to trust that he will do what only he can do. We're going to believe that he can restore. We're going to trust and believe that he can heal. We're going to put eternity before our reputation. We're going to put it in his hands. As we close today, I, I want to just leave you with one thought. And this is it. On our own. On our own, because I think that's what the people in Sardis were trying to do. They just coasted by on their own. Things were going good. On our own, we will lose. On our own, we will fall into this easy faith, this comfortable coasting faith. On our own, we will struggle with fleshly sins and desires. On our own, we will create our own storms. On our own, we will not win. But in him and with him, we can overcome. In him, he will calm the storms. In him, he's going to cast out the spirits. In him, he will raise the dead back to life. In him, we can overcome. It's not good enough to just have a good Christian reputation. We have to live it out each and every day that we take a breath.
Our reputation has to match our life. So the question is this, what do you need to wake up to? It's pretty simple. What do you need to wake up to? And what do you need to be watchful for of the attacks coming in your life? No matter what comes, the thing that I'm blown away over and over again is that Jesus ends these letters with hope. But to the one who hears, I love that God gives us the opportunity to respond. The opportunity to respond to him. The opportunity to trust him. We've heard what he can do. We know what he can do. And we know what he has done. And so now's the chance for us to respond. What do you need to wake up to? Where do you need to be watchful for? Where's the enemy trying to attack you today? And where do you just need to fall face first before him and acknowledge that he is God, he is Lord, and he is almighty? This next song is... um, is one of my son's favorites. And I love the message. I love the message that we serve a God who can take what seems to be dead and bring it back to life. A God who can transform something that was broken and meant for death and bring something beautiful out of it. Spring forth new life, new growth. And so during this song, however you want to worship, seated, that's fine. If you want to stand and lift up your hands, that's, that's fine. If you want to dance in the aisle, you are more than welcome to. However God is leading you and stirring in you today, right now in this moment, even at home on your couch, this is our chance to respond, to wake up, church, to wake up, to strengthen what he has given us, and to go all in for his kingdom and his glory. Father, I ask right now, Lord, that you would just pour your spirit out, Lord, that you would stir within us, Lord, that you would move us to a place where we would respond, Father, and that we would not just respond with our lips, Lord, but that we would respond with our actions. We would respond with our lives, respond with our love. Respond in new ways, Father. God, the bold prayer of make us uncomfortable. And I know some of us just squirmed. Make us uncomfortable, though, God. And let us follow you in obedience. Father, we ask that every word, every person that we uh, come in contact with, that we would be bright, shining lights for you. That they would see you and they see us, Lord. That only you, Lord, can fulfill and fill us up, Lord. So fill us, Lord. Fill us now. Fill us in new ways. Drench us in your spirit, God. We love you. And we pray this in the name 
and the only name that can save, the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.